Good morning, everyone. And again, a warm welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this Lord's Day. Uh, You will find in your worship guide bulletin uh, sermon notes to uh, aid us as we turn now to God's Word. I put a lot of thought into the sermon notes for today. Plumb the depths of my vivid imagination to come up with those three blanks, but I, I trust they'll be of some use, uh, some service uh, to you. Last Sunday, we looked at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, a lesson on marriage. Today, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, a lesson on children. And so, a lesson on marriage. And a lesson on children, obviously, these two coupled together uh, point us toward the home, the family. That being the case, I think it merits, I think it requires us to step back from Mark chapter 10 just for a moment. Uh, The lesson we heard last Sunday, last Lord's Day on marriage And the lesson we're going to look at today on children, just step back for a moment to to consider briefly an extremely important yet often overlooked, neglected, uh, maybe forgotten truth. And uh, I think it's necessary for us to remember this, to articulate it, and to express it. It is as follows. As a consequence of the fall, every home is dysfunctional. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of that. As a result, as a consequence of the fall, every, and I do mean every, home is dysfunctional. Every home is broken. To varying degrees, in different respects, but we are all in the same boat, so to speak. Again, as a consequence of the fall, every single home is dysfunctional. That's important for five reasons, and let me give these to you quickly. Uh, I pray not too quickly. I pray we grasp these and take them to heart. Uh, This truth that as a consequence of the fall, every home is dysfunctional, it provides a needed reality check. It provides a much-needed reality check. We tend, most of us anyway, we tend to idolize the past, We remember the good, and we forget the bad. And we do it, we do that very thing when it comes to our perspective, our view of the home, the family. Far too many of us actually believe there was a time when everyone was like the Cleavers. Remember? Some of you younger ones don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Ward, June, Wally, and the Beaver. Some of us actually think that time existed. And that home was reflective of every home in the United States. That is to idolize the past. There was no idyllic time in the past when families had it all together. We need that reality check. And we need to remember that as a consequence of the fall, every home is dysfunctional. The second implication of that truth is as follows. It helps us to identify the issue. Every home is dysfunctional, broken, Because every individual is sinful. There is the issue. We arrive at the heart of the matter. 
Every home is dysfunctional to some degree. Every home is broken in some respect. And the reason is because every individual is sinful. We think we're victims. We're not. We're villains. We think we're victims. But in actual fact, more often than not, we're villains. Uh, Far too often, what we are and what we think we are are miles apart. And when it comes to broken homes, we must identify and address the root issue. Uh, A broken home, a broken home, a dysfunctional home, all of us, yes, and it is because all of us as individuals are sinful. The third implication of the truth is this. It points us to Jesus. As a consequence of the fall, every home is dysfunctional. Friend, where else can you turn? Where else can we go in our brokenness? And in the problems that plague us in the context of the home, the context of the family, it points us to Jesus. There aren't any easy fixes for broken homes. And anyone who suggests otherwise is misleading you. There are not any easy fixes, simple solutions for broken homes. There is the cross. There is the cross. The cross humbles the proud. The cross breaks the stubborn. The cross heals the wounded. The cross compels us to forgive. The cross engenders meekness. It engenders kindness. It engenders gentleness. Hear this, friend. The only hope for broken homes and broken relationships is a broken Christ. The only hope for broken homes, broken marriages, broken relationships is a broken Christ. The fourth implication is this. It cultivates mutual empathy and sensitivity. As a consequence of the fall, every home is dysfunctional. That cultivates mutual empathy and sensitivity. We understand that this world is broken. We understand that this brokenness touches the home. We understand that every home is broken to some degree. This realization breaks our heart. And out of our brokenness, we minister to one another. Fifth implication. There are lots. I'm only giving you five. I think these five will suffice. This truth reminds us of the function of the church. As a consequence of the fall, every home is dysfunctional. That reminds us of the ministry, the function of the church. Yes, amen. The church upholds God's word. Consequently, the church upholds God's good and proper design for marriages, families, and relationships. But the church does not exist for those who seem to have it all together. The church exists for the broken and for the dysfunctional. The church exists for the broken and for the dysfunctional. I think we need to remind ourselves of that an awful lot, probably more well, I'll, say, I'll speak for myself probably more than I do. And probably as a church collectively more than we do collectively. As a consequence of the fall, every home is dysfunctional. I think that has to be. That's a biblical framework. That's a biblical view. And that is a framework through which, by which, in which, we approach a text like Mark chapter 10, the first 12 verses, and that lesson on marriage that we heard last Lord's Day. That is the framework through which we view the text we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. 
a lesson on children. I want to begin by reading the three parallel accounts. No need for you to turn there. They're very brief. But we actually have the same account in Matthew. We have the same account in Luke. And there are one or two differences, not contradictions, just simply differences. As these authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, write to different audiences, write for different reasons, they emphasize different details at times. And so I'm going to begin with Matthew's, go to Luke's, and then come back to Mark. So find Mark and just listen as I read from Matthew and then as I read from Luke. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him, Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Fair enough. Now listen to Luke. I'm speaking, of course, of Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And now we come to Mark, chapter 10, 13 through 16. Here's our text. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And it's a rich, wonderful portion of, of God's word. What is the Lord Jesus saying? He's essentially saying three things. And I'm going to unpack them by way of, by way of three commands. I might as well give them to you right at the, right at the outset, right at the start. Three commands. And, and I want to direct each of these commands to a, to a particular group. They are not restricted to these groups. But I, but I, but I trust it will be profitable for us if we think in terms of these groups and, and wrestle with what the Lord Jesus is saying there and their application in these three contexts. So the first lesson by way of a command is simply this. Value children. The Lord Jesus is saying that. Value children. And when we come back to it, I want to direct that to society at large. Okay? The second lesson is this. Evangelize children. And I want to direct that primarily, although it is broader. Its application is broader. But we have to focus just because of time restrictions. I want to apply that primarily in the context. Think of that primarily in the context of the family. All right? And then the third The third command, third lesson by way of a command is this. Imitate children. Imitate children. Not for society, not for the family, but for us, all of us as individuals. So what is the Lord Jesus saying here? Uh, That's what the Lord Jesus is saying here. Firstly, value children. What does that mean for society at large? Secondly, evangelize children. What does that mean for us as families, in particular men? What does that mean for us as the head of our home? And then thirdly, for all of us, each one gathered here this day, uh, imitate children. So come with me now to the first, as we begin our travel, our journey, as we meander our way through these three valuable lessons, value children. It comes out in the 13th and 14th verses. 
and they were bringing children to him. Who's they? Parents, bringing children. Matthew and Mark use a Greek term, which is really a generic general term for children. Luke, I don't know if you picked up on it. Uh, The translation is different because Luke uses a different word. He uses the Greek term, which means babies, infants. Matthew and Mark, they're not that concerned. Luke, a doctor, he picks up on this. He emphasizes this. These are infants. These are are babies, small children. Uh, They were bringing their children to him, to Jesus. Why? That he might touch them. Touch them why? Because they need healing? No. Touch them why? Implied in in this act of touching is blessing. Praying. How do the disciples respond right at the end of verse 13? When they see this, they rebuked them. Rebuked whom? The parents. Why? We don't know for certain. Perhaps they're thinking to themselves, well, Jesus has more important things to be doing than playing with children. He has more important things to be doing than being distracted by children. Time is of the essence. Time is limited. Twelve hours in the day from the dawning of the sun to the setting of the same. And he needs to be preaching. He needs to be teaching. He needs to be healing. Look at the people who are coming with their leprosy and paralysis and and demon possession and all of these other things. First things first. Priorities, priorities, priorities. Go away. Back off. There are far more important things that he should be doing than taking your children in his lap, touching them, blessing them, and praying over them. What is Christ's response to that? 14th verse, when he saw it. This is a strong word, folks. He was indignant. I don't think we use that word that much. Maybe a word, term more familiar to us. He was annoyed. He was annoyed. He was angry. Why? Because the Lord Jesus values There is lesson number one. Value children. How we treat children. How we handle children. How we view children. Says a great deal about us. And this is a lesson I want to to direct at our society at large. What does it say when children are viewed as exploitable. What does it say when children are viewed as exploitable? You could travel to just about any major city around this world this day, particularly in parts of Asia, but this country not spared. And in parts of Asia, for less than what it costs to purchase a Happy Meal, arrange for an encounter with a 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, and commit unimaginable acts. What does that say about the state of humanity? What does that say about the predicament of mankind? What does it say when children are viewed as disposable? Now, this is graphic, folks, but it is what it is. Tomorrow morning, how many babies will be discarded in plastic bags outside of abortion clinics across this country. What does that say of us as a society when children are viewed as disposable? What does it say when children are viewed as marketable? They're simply another segment of a consumer society that is to be targeted. 
And so we, through, through advertising, we bombard them with this message of how they should think, how they should talk, uh, how they should act, what they should wear. And then we tie all of this to the attainment of self-esteem. And then we market goods convincing them that in order to achieve and attain self-esteem, they must buy into this. They are marketed. They are viewed as just another marketable segment of our society, a consumer society. What does it say when children are viewed as undesirable? Undesirable. Now, we watched a, a BBC production recently. I know some of you watched it. Some of you are currently watching it. It's called From Candleford to Lark Rise. And it's based in the 1800s and uh, focuses on this family in this small rural community of rural England. And one of the central figures is the mother. Her name is Emma. And there is a, there is a, a tension that runs from the beginning of the series to the end of the series as they trace the life of this family in this rural community and as it centers around the post office and the postal system. And, and, and Emma is a central figure and, and the tension that is depicted from the beginning to end is what? She has five children and she is wondering from beginning to end if she has chosen the wrong path. She wonders if she could have been an accomplished uh, artist, a poet. She wonders if she might have been a, a renowned school teacher. And there is this unresolved tension in the mind and heart and perspective and view of this mother as to whether or not she chose the right thing. You see, what is the message? It is a subtle message that we are bombarded with today. It, it is simply this. We must choose between making a family and making a difference. That's our society's message and young people understand this. Young women understand this. That is the message you are bombarded with through the films, through the music, through the entire popular culture. The message is this. We must choose between making a family or making a difference. Really doing something important. See, children, they are viewed by many as undesirable. I wonder what the Lord Jesus thinks of us. I wonder what the Lord Jesus thinks of the society in which we live. Go back to verse 14. When he saw it, he was indignant. I don't think we have to guess, folks. I think we know. I think we know how much the Lord Jesus values children. How, how highly he holds them in his estimation. And how we view children says a great deal, a tremendous deal about us. The second lesson is this, evangelize children. Look with me again at verse 14. Uh, when Jesus saw it, so what the disciples were doing, he was indignant and he speaks to them directly, a commandment, let the children come to me. And it's this next phrase I want you to, us to focus on. Do not hinder them. You are an impediment. That is what he's saying to them. Uh, you are in the way. 
At this very moment, the way in which you're acting, I can't describe it in any other term than this. You are a hindrance. Do not hinder the little children from coming to me. Do not prevent the little children from coming to me. As a matter of fact, if you saw things the way I see things, this would be at the top of your priority list. If you really perceive things the way I perceive things, rather than being a hindrance, rather than hindering these children from coming to me, you would facilitate their coming to me. Rather than being the agent by which they are kept from me, you would be the agent, you would be the means, you would be the instrument by which they are brought to me. There's an invaluable lesson there. Let me summarize it again. I've already expressed it three or four times. Here it is. Evangelize children. Again, it applies to the church at large. It applies to us as individuals. It most certainly applies to us as families. That one of our greatest callings, one of our chief responsibilities, and one ministry of unparalleled value and in which God takes unparalleled delight is this whereby we facilitate children's encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a great calling. That is a holy calling. That is a calling that Christ holds in high esteem, whereby we facilitate it. We become the agents by which we bring children into a living encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Now, we're not going to apply that to society. We could apply it to a church as a whole, couldn't we? And and I trust we will on our own, maybe later this afternoon. I don't have the time to do it for us. I want to apply it to us as families. Families. And I want to apply it to myself and the other men here as heads of the home and to understand that here is a command, do not hinder them. Implying what? The opposite. We must encourage them. And what a great and awesome calling and responsibility we have to bring our children into those times, into those places where they encounter Jesus. I'm going to affirm four or five, maybe six, we'll see how time goes, ways in which we do that. I'm applying it primarily to the men. It it applies to all of us. And and I hope you don't tune out now simply because I'm thinking primarily of of men and their role in the head of the home. It applies to all of us in in some degree. And and what I'm going to say is certainly applicable for all of us. But before I give these five, they're words of wisdom. They're they're from Scripture, affirmed throughout Scripture. Before I give them, though, I think I need to insert uh, a warning. And... um, I trust this will be well received. Insert a warning. The warning, is, the warning is this before I give this list. We within um, conservative, reformed, evangelical circles, to some degree, not to a large degree, but to some degree and certainly varying degrees as you move in our circles, we have, we have adopted an alien gospel. What do you mean? That needs some explanation. We have adopted the prosperity gospel. What? I can't believe, you can't believe I just said that. We've adopted the prosperity gospel. We all know what the prosperity gospel is, right? We hear it out there all the time from Joel Olstein and others, that if you think positively enough, and if you visualize what it is you want, and if you have enough faith, if you just have enough faith, 
then God will make your dreams come true and give you exactly what you want. We've adopted that. What do I mean? We have adopted that for families. What do I mean? We have adopted the prosperity gospel for families. We don't think that if we believe enough, God will bless us. But we think this. If we obey enough, if we watch the right videos, if we read the right books, if we attend the right seminars, if we adopt the right strategies, if we do it all right and do it the way we should do, do it, God will bless us. He will have no choice but to bless us. That is a false gospel. That is an alien gospel. That is the prosperity gospel for families. We do our best. We do our best in the light of God's word and by God's grace as he equips us and enables us in our weakness and in our frailties and our brokenness and in our sinfulness. We do our best. Friends, we do not control the future. And what we do will not determine the future. We do not manipulate the future. Our children are in God's hands. We do our best for them in the light of God's word. But we need to avoid this thinking because what I see it leading to in so many people today is disillusionment and discouragement. We did it all right. How could he have turned out like that? Or how could she have gone down that road? We, we went to that seminar year after year. We homeschooled. We did this. We did that. We did this. We did that. God had to have blessed us. He was obliged to make it all work out. And that is a false gospel. That is simply the prosperity gospel in a different disguise. This idea that if we obey enough, if we get enough of it right, if we just do it right, well, then God, well, he will bless our families. That is an extremely important caveat for us because I'm going to give you a list now of how to do it right. And my fear is... We'll all run out of here. We'll type it up, stamp it on the fridge. If I just do this, let the blessing flow. No, friends. We do what we're called to do before God in our brokenness by his grace. And we commend our children to the living God. And we leave them and dedicate them and entrust them to God. That said, number one, I want to bring my children to encounter Jesus. I want, I want to unra- arrange these encounters between the Lord Jesus and my children, between the gospel and my children. Five very simple things, five very simple things. We lead them in family worship. There you go. Nothing complicated there. You see that throughout Scripture. We lead them in family worship. Not a 45-minute sermon. No, don't do that. We, we lead them in a simple prayer, in a simple reading of God's Word, and in sincerity of heart, and in, and in simplicity, uh, in terms of our words and our demeanor, we set aside that time as a family, and in prayer and by the word, we bring them to the throne of God, and we bring them to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. We lead them in worship, in simplicity and in sincerity. Secondly, we acquaint them with God's works. Deuteronomy 4.9, make them known to your children and to your children's. Children, you grandparents thought you were off the hook today. No, you are not. Make them known to your children and to your children's 
children. Make known what? God's works. His work of creation. And how it shows us his power and his wisdom and his goodness. His work of providence. What it means to trust in him. The one who works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And his work of redemption. And how he has predetermined to glorify and magnify himself through his son, the Lord Jesus, who has purchased his people by dying on the cross and now lives forevermore to make intercession for us. That is a world in which we live. And those are works which we seek to impart and impress upon our children. Number three, we encourage them, our children, in the habit of seeking God. We encourage them in the habit of seeking God. We pray with them. We encourage them to pray. We encourage them to read the word. We encourage them to seek God. And with time, by God's grace, however much of a ritual that might appear at different stages in life, by God's grace, at some point, that ritual will become what? In sincerity of heart, a true seeking after God, his kingdom and his righteousness. The fifth is this, and perhaps the most important. Not perhaps, certainly the most important. We live out the gospel before our children. We live out the gospel before our children. We lead them in family worship. We acquaint them with God's works. We encourage them in the habit of seeking God. We involve them in the, oh, I missed one. We involve them in the church's worship. Before I get to that last one, we live out the gospel before them. Here's the fourth one. You thought something was wrong with my numbering. Here's the fourth one. We involve them in the church's worship. And so we do what we're doing right now. These little ones scattered throughout this auditorium. And they're doodling on their pieces of paper, on their clipboards, or their minds are miles away, or they're reading a book, or they're doing something. The point is they're here. And they're witnessing what? You worshiping. And you're exposing them to what? The means of grace, the only means by which they will be saved. The apostles' doctrine, prayer, fellowship, the Lord's Supper. You're exposing them to these things week after week after week. The church, as it gathers to worship God, you're including them in it. You're incor- we're incorporating them in it. We, we are putting them under the means of grace those instruments by which we pray and we trust and we plead God to work upon their heads and upon their hearts. Do you know what that means? That means for me, as a, as a man, as the head of my home, if I'm not bringing my children regularly to the worship of the church, what am I doing? I'm hindering them, I believe this, from coming to Jesus. If sports is more important to me on a Sunday morning, or family, or leisure, host of all shopping, so many other things, and this is simply another option out of five possibilities, and uh, I'm not regularly bringing my children under the means of grace. I don't know how else we, we interpret this or what other conclusion we arrive at other than what I've already stated. We are then actually guilty of hindering them. We are, we are cutting them off from, a, from what? An encounter, a potential encounter with 
Jesus. We are removing them, severing them from what? The gospel. The very thing we want to impress upon them. Now I come to the fifth, most important. We live out the gospel before them. How? We seek to show them consistency between what we say and what we do. If it is not real in our lives, we can't expect it to be real in their lives. We seek to show them, it's not perfection, not perfection, but a measure of consistency between what we say and we do, because if it isn't real in our lives, we can't expect it to be real in their lives. We live out the gospel before them. How? We seek to show them what is truly important in life. Godliness is more important than making money. I said it. Godliness, holiness, purity of heart is more important than making money. Worship is more important than leisure. Fellowship, Christian fellowship, is far more important than watching TV. We live out the gospel before them by trying to show them what real vibrant religion is in all our imperfections. We show them what it is to read the Bible, study the Bible. We show them what it is to pray. We live out the gospel before them, seeking to demonstrate Christian character, patience, self-control, long-suffering, loving-kindness, gentleness. And we seek to live out the gospel before them by seeking to show them what a biblical marriage looks like. That brings us back to last Sunday's message, doesn't it? And what I seek to, what I sought to affirm repeatedly, that God in his infinite wisdom and God in his infinite goodness has actually embedded the gospel in creation. Marriage. He has embedded the relationship between Christ and the church Christ and his bride, Christ and his body in the marriage relationship between husband and wife. And so we seek to live out the gospel before them, seeking to show them what a biblical marriage looks like. That's lesson number two, evangelize children. And lesson number three, still in verse 14 and certainly leads us into the 15th verse, imitate children. And so verse 14 from the start, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, annoyed, and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Very controversial statement. Maybe you weren't aware of that, you're aware of it now. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. What does he mean? Is is the Lord Jesus hinting? Is he suggesting that um, children in this infancy stage, remember it's small children, babies, infants, is the Lord Jesus suggesting that there is a window? Is he hinting at the fact that there is a period of time in which infants, we don't know when this period of time ends, we do not know when this window closes, but there is a period of time in which they are entitled to the kingdom of heaven. Implying what? That if they were to die during that window, many of us have suffered miscarriages right here, right? Some of us buried infants. If they were to die in that window, that period of time, they are heirs 
of the kingdom of God. Not because they are innocent. They're not. If they were innocent, they would not have died. Death is the consequence of sin. Adam's sin reckoned to all of us. Not saved, not inheriting, entering the kingdom because they were innocent. But entering the kingdom, possessing the kingdom by God's sovereign grace. I lean that way. I uh, lay my pillow on, I lay my head on my pillow at night, and it brings great comfort and strength and encouragement. I believe there is a hint of that here. I don't believe it's his primary or principal message or lesson. Look at how he words it here. Verse, verse 15, 14. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Which, which prepares us for what? He is about to make a what? Comparison. And then he brings out the comparison in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There's the third lesson for all of us. Imitate Children. Imitate children. That's going to require some explaining. I'll get there in a moment. Imitate children. Think it through. God has, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, he has embedded, entrenched, the gospel, the relationship between Christ and the church in marriage. Do we get that? Also true. He has embedded the way in which we receive the gospel in creation, children. Think it through. In his wisdom, in his goodness, he has given us the family, the, 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 the pillar of any society, any community, any country. And in the family, as designed by the goodness and the infinite, unsurpassing wisdom of God, He has given us the very gospel, embedding it in the relationship between husband and wife, pointing to, mirroring what? The relationship between Christ and the church. And in children, he has embedded what? How precisely we enter the kingdom. How precisely we believe the gospel. It is by becoming like children that we enter the kingdom of God. It is by becoming like children that we believe and receive the gospel. Now check that. Jesus does not say that we must become childish. That's not what we're talking about. We're all very familiar with what it means to be childish. That applies not only to child, that applies to many of us as adults. We know what it is to be childish. That's not what Christ is saying. That's a sign of immaturity. He's not saying we should be childish. He is affirming that we must be what? Child-like. And what is it that the Lord Jesus is gravitating to as these parents bring their babies, little boys, little girls, these infants, and as they bring them and as they place them on his lap and in his arms and as he touches them and prays over them and blesses them, what is it about them as the disciples are 
in a little bit of a huff here and a tizzy over what's happening. But as they look on and they now hear Christ say these words, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is he impressing upon them? What is he conveying to them? Here is how you're saved. Here is how you believe. Here is how you enter the kingdom. You come to me in childlike faith. You come to me in absolute humble dependence like a child. Now think of it. Those of us who have young ones, uh, those of you who can remember what it was like to have young ones, when your child calls for you in the middle of the night, right? When your child crawls up into your lap to cuddle, when your little one cries out for you after falling down to the ground, when your child takes you by the hand as he stumbles over uneven ground, as your child looks to you for protection and direction, when your child calls you daddy or your child calls you mommy, do we realize what we are witnessing? It is the proclamation of the gospel. We know what the gospel is. How do we receive it? What does it mean to believe? Look to your children. And in each of those scenarios, we see what? We feel what? We understand what? Humble, absolute, complete helplessness and dependence upon us. That is what it means to believe. And so in this lesson on marriage... We see the gospel, that the marriage relationship points to the relationship between Christ and the church, that as a husband, a husband lives for his wife, pours himself out for his wife, is prepared to die for his wife. In that we see what? We see the gospel. We see what the Lord Jesus has done on behalf of his bride, the church. We see the Lord Jesus giving himself up at Calvary's cross to purchase her and to wash her and to redeem her and to cleanse her. Well, how do I believe that? How do I get in? How do I enter into the kingdom of God? Now look to children. And in their humble, utter, absolute dependence, and in their trustfulness, and in their their inability to help themselves, their helplessness, absolute helplessness, and dependence upon us, we see what it means to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. It was a wonderful text. I was sharing this yesterday in Granbury at the conference. A wonderful text in the middle of Romans 8. Maybe some of you have, uh, have got there as you're memorizing. I know some of you are memorizing Romans 8. In the middle of that chapter, great verses uh, 15 and 16. And there the Apostle Paul reminds us that uh, we have received the spirit of adoption. We have received the spirit of, do- of adoption by which we cry, Abba. Father. And then he adds in the very next verse that the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the sons of God. And if sons, the heirs of God. I want to know how. How does the Holy Spirit testify with my spirit? How does the Holy Spirit bear witness in my inner being that I am indeed a son, a child of God, and therefore a co-heir with Christ and an heir of God? How? Paul has just told us in the preceding verse. We have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, 
Abba, Father. See, that is the cry of childlike dependence. That is the cry of helplessness. That is a cry we are brought to by the Spirit of God when we realize we cannot do anything to merit favor with God. We realize, as a matter of fact, that we've done a host of things to incur God's wrath. We realize we are guilty sinners, vile sinners in God's sight. We are helpless. We are hopeless. And we look away from ourselves. And in childlike dependence, we cry out, Abba, Father. It is, a, it is an, an odd reality, according to, to many that I've heard who have visited some of these orphanages in Eastern Europe and in Asia and in other places, not all of these orphanages, but some of them, an odd reality that many have shared that upon walking into these orphanages where there are 30, 40, 50, 60 small children under the age of four, under the age of three, that the, the most striking feature of these orphanages is silence. Silence. The children don't cry. The children don't call out. Why? Because they have learned that when they cry, no one answers. They have learned that when they call out, no one comes. They have learned that when they scream, no one is there. And so they have fallen into this state of silence, deafening silence in some of these orphanages where they do not cry out because they have learned that in crying, no one That is the world at large right now. The world at large right now orphaned from their heavenly father. The world right now orphaned from their creator and from their judge and from their king. Not crying out, not even perceiving their need, not even aware of their need. But here is what marks the Christian. Here is what marks the people of God. Here is what marks those who have entered the kingdom of heaven. They cry out, Abba, Father. In heartfelt dependence as they come to their own barrenness and and heart-wrenching awareness of their helplessness, their inability to help themselves, the hopelessness of their situation, the fact that they stand in danger of incurring God's wrath, And by the Spirit of God, they cry out. That is what the Lord Jesus is teaching the disciples in Mark chapter 10. That is the most important lesson in those verses. That is the lesson that eclipses all other lessons. And that is the lesson I leave you with this morning, friend, from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Imitate children. Imitate children. Our Father... We are so thankful we can address you as such. So thankful for that purchasing price, the blood of the Lord Jesus, by which we've been redeemed, and not only redeemed, but by which we have been adopted, made part of your family, whereby we are beneficiaries of all the rights, privileges, gifts, and blessings of membership in your family. We thank you for this. We praise you for this. We ask now that as we have heard your word, and been instructed out of your word that you would open the eyes of our hearts, give us spiritual illumination, spiritual understanding to understand, to perceive, to value things in the light of eternity. We intercede 
And our hearts break this morning for those gathered here who do not know you as Father, who do not know your Son as Savior. And we pray that you be merciful, well pleased to pour forth your power, well pleased to pour forth your grace, well pleased to accompany the preaching of your word with the pouring out of your spirit, breaking and bending their hearts and their wills, and bringing them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.